the summer when I was 19, so between my freshman and sophomore year, I had a friend who had told me, you should go live on Block Island for the summer. So I go to Block Island with $80 in my pocket and like a return plane ticket to come back, no cell phone, no nothing. And I get a job the first day there, but on the island, it's such a big tourist island. There's just no place to live. And so I brought my tent with me. And like the first thing I get off the ferry onto Block Island it says like absolutely no camping on the island. Of course, I like set my tent up right behind the police station because I was like, they'll never look in their backyard. And it really worked. So I lived in a tent for a while. And then I met the manager of the place where I was like selling pizza. And he was like, oh, I have a friend who has a boat. You can come live on the boat. I lived on a boat for a while. And the only way my parents could call me is they would call like pretending they were ordering a pizza. So I lived in all these like different hodgepodge things. And I had a million jobs. She isn't joking. Krista Desir, class of 1996, really has done just about everything. And I know we say that a lot, but in this case, Krista takes it to new extremes. Krista chooses to live by a rule. Say yes. This episode is an exploration of what life looks like when we decide we're willing to try anything once. Often, this leads us to connections, unexpected wisdom, and wonderful adventures. But as Krista shares, other times, it can lead to overwhelm, distraction, and getting way in over our heads. To make sense of it, Krista tries to stay true to what she calls her center line, that feeling in her gut and voice in her head that stays with her no matter where she ends up. Today, we unpack all of this, the zany, the scary, and the power behind the simple words, sure, why not? From the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College, I'm Meredith Benjamin. Stay with us. Krista, hi, how are you doing? It's so nice to see you. It's nice to see you too, Meredith. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I love talking to Grinnellians. It feels like, oh, there's my people. Oh. So. Well, can you start by sharing who you are and what you do? So my name is Krista Desir. I graduated Grinnell technically in December of 95. I graduated in seven semesters, but I walked in 96 with the rest of my class. I am currently a senior editor for Sourcebooks Publishing. I work a little bit in a general fiction, book club fiction. I work a lot in romance and big commercial kind of romance. And then I work a little bit in strange things I never thought I would work in, like historical Western books. I, I have a, a really interesting job. But yes, I am an acquiring editor for Sourcebooks. But you've also done a lot of other things. And that is going to be the theme of today's conversation. So Krista, do you think you could list for me every job you've ever had? I have been a stage manager. I have taught kickboxing. I have negotiated the talent for the Marlboro Cowboys. 
I have worked as a CFO for a music company. I worked for a dentist and a women's clothing boutique. I have been a rape victim advocate. I have been a YA author and an editor. I have done advertising. I worked as a radio producer. I wrote freestanding inserts for Summer's Eve, the douche company. I worked for a little while for Weight Watchers, which was really weird. Taught Sunday school. I have done roller derby. Um, Yeah, I've had a lot of jobs. Before we dive into the many, many different things that you, Krista, have done, I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit about your time at Grinnell. When I was at Grinnell, I think it's because I found theater really early. So I was a theater major. I did not come in as a theater major. I came in as an English major. But as soon as I found theater, I was gone. I loved it. I loved every part of it. If there was a show going on, I was either stage managing it or doing lighting design or building sets or I was in it. And because I only lived three years on campus and my final semester was at Grinnell in London, it felt like most of my time was sort of spent either academically or doing theater stuff. Now I have kids who are in college and I want them to like do everything. And I'm like, you should join this club. You should do fencing. You should do like my daughter did some kind of like sea shanty, acapella sea shanty club. And I was like, that's so cool. Do more of that. And I realized part of that is because I was so insular to the theater world. So I don't think that my tendency to be as curious or as willing to try things was how I started off from Grinnell. But I think when I left Grinnell, I was so curious and the foundation the school gave me sort of made me feel like, oh yeah, I could do that. But it didn't necessarily come in all the different activities I did in Grinnell, if that makes sense. Yeah. So as you were about to graduate, what was going through your mind? Initially, I was graduating in seven semesters because I wanted to save money. I needed to save money. And because I was at Grinnell in London, there was so much theater there and it was so amazing. So part of me was like, I'm just going to go and do theater and absorb as much of it as I can in London. And then I thought, well, then I will go back home and then I will start stage managing at night. So I moved back in with my parents. I temped during the day and then stage managed at night. And I did this for a while. And then I was like, this sucks. I was so bummed about it because I love the stage management, but I also was like, these hours are horrific. You have no life beyond that. I wasn't making enough money as a stage manager just to do stage management. So I had to temp during the day. And I was like temping at like a medical accreditation place in the HR department. I knew nothing, but I just could talk to people. So it was fine. And after a while, I just was like burned out. And I think part of the problem by graduating early was, you know how everyone nearing graduation, they're sort of making their plans, like they're getting together and they're like, let's all move to Seattle. And you're going to kind of do it with other people. Well, I didn't have any of that because no one else graduated in December. So there I was like back living with my parents where everyone else was like making plans. And then I got a real job that was non-theater in advertising because I was like, well, it's a creative field and I'll go and, and be an executive assistant in advertising, it's fine. Like many things in my life, I have very few criteria about what I was up for doing or not doing. And my criteria was I didn't want to have to do something that I had to wear nylons to work. That was like it. If there's some kind of situation with nylons, I'm out. 
Otherwise, I was like pretty game for anything. And so I got this job in advertising. So it was within like six months of stage managing where I was like, oh, actually, I don't want this life. And I really had to think a lot about it because I was so certain I did when I graduated. But this will come as probably no surprise to you, but I get bored really easily. And when you're doing theater in college, it's like you do all the rehearsals, you do a couple of shows, like a couple weekends, and then you're on to the next or you're like simultaneously simultaneously getting ready for your next show. Well, these shows were like four months long where you're seeing the same thing mm. over and overnight. And I was like, oh, this is not what I want. This isn't something that's fun for me or stimulating for me in the way that I thought it would be. And with many things, how I sort of approached it was like, what don't I want to do or what's not possible for me to do? So I was like, all right, is Olympian as a 22 year old, is that an option for me? And then my mom was like, well, you could be a loser. And then I started like looking into luge and like the the training for that. And I was like, I, I think I'm out. And then I hate flying and like get sick on planes. So like astronaut, flight attendant, pilot, all of that was out. So there were like a lot of things that I was like, okay, I can cut this out. But everything else, I kind of was like, I could try this. I'm interested in this. And I think like that sort of tended to be how I moved forward and learned A, about myself and like where I was meant to land, but also it kept me intellectually curious. So like, because I came out of Grinnell, I started with a foundation of volunteering, of course. So I worked on domestic violence hotline for a long time. And then I did rape victim advocacy. And I did rape victim advocacy as a volunteer for almost 10 years. That has always stayed like a constant. It's different kind of volunteering now, but it's certainly something that I've like held on to. And I've stayed with that pretty consistently. And there was a time when I went back to get a master's in social work, thinking that I might want to do advocacy full time. I got through about a year of the program. And then I realized that the program wasn't buying me anything that I wasn't already doing. And I didn't need a master's to do that. And so I dropped out of that program and stayed still doing it and still do it to this day. I worked with rape victim advocates for a long time in hospital ERs, and that was very intense. I was one of the few volunteers who lasted usually the turnover because the volunteer vicarious trauma is so high that you usually lose people after about 18 months. And then I transitioned to the board there. And then because I am a survivor, one of my people who was on the board with me, she was starting her own nonprofit called the Voices and Faces Project, which which was more about trying to give truly a voice and face to survivors. Because one of the things about rape shield laws, which is like super important, is it protects survivors from having their identity out there publicly. But that can be incredibly isolating for survivors also because it's not like it's like a cocktail party conversation where you could say like, so I'm a survivor. So it felt really lonely. And what I found at RVA was that a lot of the other advocates were also survivors. And one of them was like, I wonder if we could start 
actually being out survivors in that we talked about this and that we were public faces for this issue. And we started a lot of research gathering and asking people questions and gathering data so that when things like this senator said something like, well, women don't get pregnant when they're raped because, you know, their bodies have a way of shutting that kind of thing down. So then we were like, we actually have data on this and this percentage of people got pregnant out of their rape. And so we were able to speak to that on like a quantitative data way. And then there were also many of us who would publicly talk about this, our own experiences with it. So a branch of that became a testimonial writing workshop. And actually my very first young adult book came out of that workshop. I go into the workshop I write the beginning of a chapter that later becomes a book that sells to Simon & Schuster. And then I go become a YA novelist for a while. And during that time, I also transitioned to one of the founding members and board members of the Voices and Faces Project. So the writing workshop still happens. A lot of other work that we're doing around survivors is still happening very actively with that organization. And now we're doing a lot of work in tandem with lots of different human rights violations, including working with incarcerated youth. That's how that program has gone. And and that's how I've stayed with it, even now, 25 years after I've graduated. When I worked in advertising, I started as an assistant in advertising. I moved into broadcast business and talent management. I I was a producer for a while, and one of my jobs was to be a talent manager for the Marlboro Cowboys, which was like a fascinating job. It was like complicated ethically because I was working for Philip Morris or I was working for the Philip Morris brand. But at the same time, the Cowboys were like so kind. They needed the money so much, and they were so grateful for it because they were seasonal workers. They were ranchers. And to get a Philip Morris, a Marlboro cowboy gig was like a huge amount of money for them. And it was like saving a lot of them during the off seasons. And you know how Grinnell can be really black and white in terms of like, this is right, this is wrong. As I went along with each new job, it was like the areas of gray became more and more obvious to me. And my ethical foundation would shake a little because it would be a lot of those kind of things that would come up with me. And I would say like, well, this is more complicated than you would think. At a certain point, it kind of was like, I can't keep doing this because it really did feel like at the end of the day, like you're working for Philip Morris. And so I went from there to working at a music house that did music for advertising commercials. So it was like a jingle house. That was really fun. I was like part den mother and part chief financial officer. So I handled all the office management and it was like 10 guy musicians. I was like the only woman in the place. During that time, I got pregnant and felt like foundationally, it was important that one of us be home. And also during that time, as just like a side hustle, I was also teaching aerobics. So I was like eight months pregnant, teaching step aerobics and kickboxing because I didn't want to pay for my gym membership. And I was like, what's like a workaround of paying for your gym membership? And then I was like, oh, I'll just teach the class. Got certified. And then it also forced me to work out. So it was like even days and I didn't really feel like going. Like I had these people who just loved it. And so I did that for a while until I had my eldest. 
I was the one who decided to stay home, but that lasted like two minutes. It was very hard. I had postpartum, but I also wasn't used to having children. My daughter was a tricky baby. And so she cried a lot and I would just strap her onto me and walk miles and miles every day. So I was like, I have to do something part-time. So I started asking people, like I had a lot of friends at the time who had small businesses that they were running themselves. So like one teaches kids music classes and one's a dentist. One is a portrait photographer, you know, one owned a women's clothing boutique. So all of them were like, oh, well, you know how to do financial things because you had been doing this financial thing before you had kids. So why don't you do our books for us? I was like, yes, that sounds perfect. And then they paid me through the barter system. So the kids music teacher had both my kids in her classes. The women's clothing store paid me in clothes, which it was like the best I ever looked. It was awesome. (laughs) I like wish that more people did the barter system because to this day, I don't pay for our dentists because I did our dentist books for so long. With our photographer, we have all this beautiful photography in our house of all of our kids, but also like my sister-in-law for her wedding gift, we gifted her her photographer because I was working for him in trade. So it was really fun. And then the whole time of that, I was still volunteering and doing that kind of thing. But as I was having my kids, I just needed something to keep me intellectually stimulated because what was hard for me so much about having kids was the only feedback I got was like children crying and screaming at me. And it just felt so defeating in a lot of ways. Like I am good at things. I know I can be good at things, but I just couldn't get there when they're small and they can't communicate. And so it was really nice having something at work where it was like, here's a problem. I can solve this. And then, um, then I started writing. And the idea always was that if I managed to get that book sold, that half the proceeds would go back to the organization and fund more writing workshops, which is what has happened with it. So that turned out pretty great. And then I wrote a few more books after that, and I have five total. And as I was writing, someone was starting a publishing company and she said, hey, you're a super fast reader and I know you love writing. Would you be interested in interning at our publishing company just for fun and reading for us? And so I was like, sure. So I did publicity. I did royalty payments. I did editing. I did copy editing, like all of it. And I learned to do all of these things basically at a startup. And then from there, I applied for other jobs and became a romance editor initially, and then started a company that I didn't mean to start. My husband and I both were talking about our respective industries, and he is like one of the only Black executive creative directors in his company. And publishing is a notoriously very white industry because many people have to intern for free in New York, or there's like a lot of things that just cost a lot of money and there's a lot of privilege baked in there. But we were both talking about it and had decided that we were both really invested in mentoring people in our respective fields. So I kind of put out a tweet because at the time I had a lot of editorial work. I was a freelance editor and I had a lot of work. And I said, I'm looking for a person of color who would be willing to be mentored and become my editorial assistant. That tweet went viral really fast. And like within an hour, I had like 50 resumes in my inbox. Wow. Every resume was like more impressive than the next, you know, it was like, there were just so many good people in that. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to pull this off. Like I can't pick one person. 
I just realized there was this massive demand for something that would teach people or that would mentor people. And so I created a mentorship program and essentially we all met on Slack. And I basically asked anyone that I knew in the publishing industry. And at this point, like I had known a lot of people because I was both an author and an editor for favors from anyone. And and it kind of took off from there. UCLA reached out and said, hey, you're a really good copy editor. Would you teach copy? copy editing. And I was like, sure. And so I did that for a while. And then after about a year and a half, I stopped doing that because I realized that all the grading and things that I was doing with UCLA was keeping the mentorship from being as big as it could be. And so we created a business side. So half of the company now is essentially, I guess what I would call it like a freelance co-op. I sent out an email to everyone I knew and said, if they're looking for freelance help, if they're looking to hire assistants who are people of color, please come to us. And since then, it's really grown. And when I started working at Sourcebooks three years ago and went in-house, I kept Tessera. And the idea with Tessera was never for it to be mine. I was actually just waiting to have some strong candidates who wanted to be the managing editors for it. So I stayed on the mentorship side and then two women who had previously been mentees now are the managing editors and they run the business side, which is great because I don't want it to be some kind of weird, like I'm the white woman in charge of all these other people. I wanted it to be their company and we do really treat it like a co-op and they're the two of them sort of run the co-op. Great. That was a lot. That's a lot of, a lot of jobs. Wow. Um, I mean, that's so many different things. And what I'm curious about is if you feel like there is a common thread between all of these different experiences. I guess what I would say is everything leads to the next thing. I've always said, I will say yes to anything. If it's interesting and I've never done it before, I'm game. And sometimes that can go south and sometimes it's really great. Sometimes I'll be editing a book and they'll talk about something in a dentist's office and I'll be like, well, actually, because I have experience in a dentist's office, right? right. There are like all these little things where people will be like, how come you know these crime stats? And I'll be like, well, because I was a rape victim advocate for like 10 years. And so I know that this is what a rape kit looks like. In some ways, I would say like I inevitably ended up doing a job where I get to read all sorts of different books about all sorts of different things because all the things I've done in my life somehow kind of fed into this. Mm. Um, And it makes me a much better editor because anything that feels like not quite true, I'm also like very willing to like do look up, do all this research on. There's no rabbit hole I won't fall down to like figure something out. But I would say like the common thread probably is like my own curiosity and boredom. (laughs) Whenever I hit a job where it felt like, okay, I've learned what I can from this space, I was going to move or I was going to pivot. As soon as I like knew I wasn't going to do stage management, it kind of became like the world is my oyster and I could try anything. So when you look at the things that you're doing as almost like an intellectual pursuit, and it's funny because even the things that I read or the media that I absorb are things like, I don't know anything about this world. So I'm going to find out about this world, or I'm going to learn about this world. 
And I think that ends up being really interesting for people because then suddenly like people will just say, oh, you've done all these interesting things. You should meet this person. And even if it's like, that'll just be in my back pocket sometime, I'll be like, oh, you know, actually I met this person who does this. I should introduce you. And like, it's connecting people, but also connecting me in a way to say like, what becomes the next thing or how does it help me and help the world grow? You know, one of the neat things about working in editing and publishing is that when you have new books all the time, it's like you don't get as bored. That's why I'm the rogue editor who doesn't just work on romance books. I also work on historical Westerns and literary fiction and like book club fiction. And I think that that's very stimulating to me as well. I want to jump back to something you just mentioned, which was that sometimes this spirit of adventure, this curiosity, and this willingness to say yes can go south. I'm wondering what you mean by that. This is a heck of a story. So I graduated in seven semesters. And the thing that happened was all my, the rest of my friends went off and were still at school while I had a job and, and got my own apartment by myself. And I was very lonely because all my friends were back at Grinnell. One day I was waiting for the bus to go to work. And this girl who was about my age said to me, are you an artist? And I was like, no, I work in advertising. And she's like, I thought so. And then the two of us started having this conversation and she was lovely. She was so sweet. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a friend. I'm meeting a friend, you know? And as an extrovert, that was so exciting for me. And she was like, a bunch of my friends are meeting tomorrow to play board games. Do you want to come play? And I was like, board games? Yes, board games are my favorite. I love that. So. So I went and like played Scrabble and like it was so fun. And then like at the very end of the night, they're like, okay, quick prayer. And I was like, oh, we're doing prayer? Okay. And I had no experience. I was not raised with religion at all. So I was like, oh, okay. So they're like in a church together. And they're like, yeah, you should come. And they're like, but first we're going roller skating. And I was like, roller skating? Yes. They did all these really fun things and they were always together. And it was the same group of young 20 something people who were all like professionals doing things. And then they were like, oh, come to church. And then we had a big brunch after church. And I like went to church and I was like, I guess I don't really know. It seemed kind of intense and it was long, but I was like, it's fine, whatever. But then it was like, suddenly I had this instant group of friends and they called all the time, but then it became like, we're going to call and then we're going to do a quick like morning prayer on the phone. And I was like, oh, we are? Okay. They were like, you should become a member of the church. And I was like, okay, well, what does that look like? What do you have to do to become a member of the church? And they're like, you're going to have to get baptized again. And I was like, I'm actually kind of sure that I was baptized already. And they're like, no, you got to be baptized in our church. Part of that was like, we're going to have this conversation where everyone just says all the shitty things they've ever done in their life. It was like confession, except we were all in this circle, like face to face. And like all these people who I'd been hanging out with, like some of the things they had done, I was like, oh, that's kind of bad. Like that's a little horrifying. Then it became this issue that one of my Grinnell friends was going to come and he was a gay man and he was going to come and live with me. And everyone was kind of like, well, the only thing is, it's probably fine. But if you have someone living with you and then you later on like invite your neighbor to church, are they going to think you're being like hypocritical because you're like living with a guy? And I was like, well, he's gay. And they're like, "Mm, is that better though? And then like the whole thing like starts crumbling because I'm like, oh no, I went to Grinnell. I have been with women. I've been with men. We like, this is not. And then they were like, oh, and also one little thing, you're going to have to get rid of your vibrators. 
And like, I had amassed a collection at this point. It was like my thing to gift people this. And so my best friend calls me and she's like, first of all, you're considering not having Michael stay with you, but worse, you are thinking about throwing away your vibrators. You are in a cult. Get out now. What had happened with the cult was that <laughs> I didn't realize how deep I was into the cult because all the fun things were still really fun, like roller skating and board games and all these other things. But it was like these other things where they were like controlling parts of my life that mm-hmm. I was like, it actually really is a cult because it was super hard to get out. It wasn't me being like, safe word, sorry, my bad, and we're breaking up. It was like people waiting outside my apartment, daily calls, like it was a lot that mm-hmm. I was like, this was a bad yes. Wow. That is a wild story. It is. It is. Yeah. That's the problem with the yes. Sometimes the yes doesn't get you where you want. Sometimes the yes sucks you into a cult. Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, like it makes for a hilarious story now. So we've talked a little bit about the rewards of saying yes. Mm -hmm. You now have a story on just about anything. You have amassed all of this knowledge and experience that you're able to translate into different areas of your life. You are never bored. And we've talked about kind of the, the pitfalls of saying yes. Sometimes you wind up in a cult. I'm wondering if we could dive a little bit deeper into the ways that these different roles and experiences that you've had feed off of each other versus distract from each other. You mentioned that you did at one point have to stop something because it was keeping you from what you really cared about, which was the the BIPOC editing mentorship program. So I'm wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about the relationship between distraction versus the interdisciplinary approach. To me, part of it has to do with keeping your center line, right? And I I talk to my kids a lot about this because they are also big volunteers. And they're like, what do you do when the whole world is a mess? Like, how do you pick? How do you choose? And I was like, you know, I think sometimes it becomes clear what your causes are or the things that you care about. You recognize you can't change the whole world, right? You recognize you can impact maybe, if you're lucky, 10 people in your life, right? And if that's the case, like... Where are you going to sort of land? Where is your ground going to be? And so for me, whenever I feel distracted or like something is pulling me away from that center line, then I know that the positive of interdisciplinary or what I call like having a bunch of side hustles and other things that I do on the side um, becomes really clear. I have children of color. I have a husband who is Haitian and he and I both made a deep commitment towards mentorship in our careers. And so for me, the UCLA thing was easy to let go of because it became so clear that most of the students that I was teaching were white and that it was taking away time from a commitment that I had made and that I had made with my family, with my own moral compass. And so when distraction happens, it sort of goes back to your center line. And for me, once I got into publishing and writing, and that kind of thing, what I really thought to myself was it's very important to cultivate readers. 
the big problem isn't that this book is messy or has typos. The big problem is not enough people read a book last year. And if I'm looking to cultivate non-readers into readers, and that is really my goal around publishing, then it becomes easy to set that as my center line. So for example, E.L. James, who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, is now my author. She is the loveliest person. She's fantastic. She says all the time, I just got lucky. But one of the cool things is she was very controversial at the time. There was like a lot of things that people were asking questions about. And they were like, do you really want to get involved? And I was like, of course I do. Because her books change people's lives in a way, like she has an entire binder full of letters from people being like, I hadn't had sex with my husband in 18 months and your books did this. All these lovely letters and all these people who are like, I hadn't read a book in a decade and like all of those things. And I was like, this is it. This is the impact. And there's no other author I know who's had so many people convert to readers than E.L. James. And so I was such an easy yes, because I was like, that's mission for me. That's cultivating non-readers into readers. And she does it better than anyone. When it comes to distraction or interdisciplinary things, I think to myself, like, what's my center line? Whether it's creating more readers or creating opportunities for people of color or working so that survivors feel like they have a voice and they aren't alone in the space that they are. Like, there are certain things that I'm like, these are the parts of me that send me off on my way. Wow, that's an amazing answer. And really, it like, it makes me think, like, what's my center line? You know, mm -hmm. and I feel like perhaps instead of focusing on trying to find, well, what's my, what's my passion? What's my calling? What's my dream career? The real question should be, what's my center line? You can have a passion. And I think that's awesome. I also worry that sometimes people pursue passions. And when you do that, you lose something. I don't read the same way that I used to read. I used to love reading. Now I cannot turn my editorial eyes off of. Mm. So careful about falling in love with something so much and then knowing that if you go into that pathway, you might lose some of your love. It'll be mm. different. And like, I listen to audiobooks now and that's my pleasure reading because mm. if I see things, I see mistakes or I see how I would do things differently. And I don't feel bad about it because I love all the things that I get to do with that. But I always am like, be careful looking behind the curtain. And I think if you stay with a center line or your own things that you care about in terms of your own values and what you want to make impact on, then it's a lot easier to figure out what's the next step then maybe everyone starts with a yes if it feeds into that. So like my friend Molly, she went to El Salvador and she was like meant to be doing like some kind of literacy work in the women's prison. But all the women were like, all we do is sit here and all they do is feed us carbs all day and all of us have gained all this weight. And so like none of them wanted her to like work on their literacy. They wanted her to teach them do exercise classes with them so that they could get moving. So she like, I will never forget. She's like, I'm so glad I took your aerobics class because I'm doing aerobics with the women in like this El Salvador women's prison. And, you know, in El Salvador, a lot of the women hadn't even committed crimes. They were partners with someone who committed crimes and the police incarcerated them because they couldn't find the guys. Oh, wow. And so, but that, if you think about like, 
what Molly's center line is like, she thinks she's doing this, but actually all she did was listen. Like, what do they really need? And then like now she probably had way more impact. They're going to be like, remember the gringa who was there like doing what she was doing, like teaching them aerobics so that they didn't just gain weight and not move because they knew for their own mental health and for their own physical health that they needed to move. You just never know the door that's going to open. And if you are just willing to be like, sure, maybe, I think it just changes a lot of the things that you could do. And in that way, like in Molly's story, it's not pivoting so much as like updating, right? It is. Exactly right. And doing what she was going to do, but like listening. I love that. The active listening and the evolving, like, wow. Um, Shifting gears a little bit. You mentioned that the author of Fifty Shades of Grey mm-hmm. is your client. You yourself, your work is known for being somewhat controversial and in its frankness about sex. And I'm wondering if anyone ever suggested that you edit or restrain yourself either in, in subject matter or in approach. And I'm just, I am wondering like what we can learn about boldness and honesty and frankness from you you make the choice, right? So I knew by having the kind of content I had in YA books that my books were never going to go into the scholastic book fair, right? And those are the choices you make. I have been like asked to be a guest, a speaking guest to teenagers. And then some teacher reads my book and they're like, actually, no, we're going to uninvite you. And by the way, you're not getting any of the money we were going to pay you to do this. And so like those things have happened. And ultimately, like, I think that to me, I was in a privileged enough position that I didn't have to cut my sex scenes, that I didn't have to do those things because I had another job. I was not counting on my author income as my sole income. So a lot of those things were choices I could make and some people can't. Some people are like, I really need that scholastic money. (laughs) So I'm taking out all the F words in my book because you can't get in scholastic book fair if you have that. So I always approached being an author like I did almost everything else, which is probably like, I'm not a lifer. I always knew like I had to say what I wanted to say in my books and that was it. I wasn't thinking about being an author as a career. I felt like I had things to say and that the world did not need more than five YA books from me. I knew that there was going to be an end to it and it was really easy for me to walk away. Some people it's not like they're like, no, it's my whole heart. I love writing. It's what I want to do. And I've watched them pivot between genres or pivot between all these different things. And I think that's really great and awesome for them. But for me, I specifically had something that I wanted to say, and I wanted to say it to the people who maybe needed it. So I might not have the scholastic book club sales, but what I have is I have reader letters that are so deeply personal, so vulnerable and wonderful. And your book changed my life. I had an experience that was just like this. I've read this book 10 times. I can't stop reading it. Whatever all of those things are. And that to me is the impact that I care about. Because I think that everyone has different purposes for their stories. And for mine, that's all I wanted with that. And so I cared less about it being banned or whatever. I think that being said, the current book banning situation is absolute garbage. I think that everything around that is complete garbage. And so it's annoying to me that my books got banned or or taken out of libraries because of sexual content, but it's infuriating 
fascinating to me that Juno Dawson's This Book is Gay is like one of the most banned books that just is a nonfiction book about being queer. But I do think that when it comes to making those decisions, like every author is different. Feels like in that way, it goes back to that center line that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Like the act of being frank is itself your center line in action. So on the theme of trying everything and doing everything, I think a lot of people base their identity in the things that they do. I am a writer. I am a dancer. I am a podcast host. And when you're constantly jumping from one yes to the next yes, I'm wondering how that impacts how you see yourself. You start realizing you're not one of anything. And I think in some ways, like your generation is really good. And they're like, I don't want to be my job. There was such a long time where people just were their jobs mm-hmm. or they were their role as if it was like, I'm just a mother or not to say just a mother, because that is in itself a very full-time job. Mm-hmm. But you know what I'm saying is like that became their role. And, and I think now, at least, you know, how I approach it is these are the things I'm not, and these are the things that I could be. And mm-hmm. these are the things that I am. I'm a survivor. I am a lover of Haitian food. I am a former podcaster. I once did a TED talk and it becomes part of all the parts about you. Then it's easier not to let one thing carry you because things change, right? right? Say I say, well, I'm a mother. I will always be a mother. Right. But now I'm at the point where two of my kids have gone to college, you know, two of the three and my house has changed. And so now I'm like this thing, this role of waking everyone up and driving them to school and all of those things like that's changed now. And I think if you have a willingness to be many things and to try many things, it allows you to spring to a thing as one thing changes or as one thing ends, frankly. I think what we don't talk enough about is that things end, friendships end, relationships end, like things end. And when that's not the only thing, then it's not so devastating, I think. No, it's like, you know, it's like, who who am I when all of those other things get taken away? Like, if you take me out of the situation, am I still this? Because there are things that we are still. Yeah. But- So you just mentioned something interesting, which is the idea of burnout by doing one thing too deeply, how that can be so exhausting and consume your life in a way that's very damaging mentally. You very much rejected that by having so many different, as you call them, side hustles, so many different outlets and things that you're a part of. But I'm curious if it ever gets exhausting to be juggling so much. Oh, for sure. I would say like, I am very susceptible to burnout. I am susceptible to overworking for all that I am. I'm also kind of a pleaser and and I like to win. And I think for me, it would be like when things that I enjoy start to feel like obligation, then I'm very aware of my own burnout. And luckily, I think of like created systems because I know that happens to me. I now have like created backup systems to that where I can say like, all right, I need to bubble up this week, which means like we're ordering takeout this week. <laughs> like I'm not cooking anything and we're doing this. And in some ways, like the pandemic was really helpful for burnout because it was like you just had to say no. And then also forgiving myself when I do like back out of things or bail on things or mm-hmm. just and a lot of that is just age. 
some of the best advice I ever got was most of being an adult is just realizing "Mm, this is the kind of thing that I'm not good at. It totally is. That's great advice. That's really great advice because it also means, did you try your best? That seems good. And stop seeing things as like, you have to be awesome at all these things. So it sounds like what we can learn from you is like, it's worth trying everything, but not being everything. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. But for me, it really works to try things for other people. Like my husband is like, I, he could never do that. He's done one thing his whole life. He loves it. He's loved it from the time he was like 17 years old. He could never imagine himself doing anything but that. Mm. So he would be like the worst person for me to be like, you should get a gig at a dentist. Like he would never do something like that. So I'm like very cautious about saying like, try everything because I want to say like some people don't need to, but I think like for people who are floundering, I guess I would more say like, don't be afraid of it. Mm. It will probably work out like the universe kind of does. Well, and there's beauty in so many things. Like there's always something interesting about just about anything that you could attempt doing, you know, anything you could try. So you anticipated the question that I was going to ask. I was going to ask, would you recommend the yes lifestyle to anyone listening? Or is it just for a certain type of person that that's going to work out for? I think that people should say yes more than they're comfortable with. Sometimes pushing yourself a little, that's probably worth it. Where do you see yourself going next? It's hard to predict, I bet, with this best lifestyle. But do you feel like there's anything that you really want to try? What I'm really interested in is globally looking at literacy and literature and the role of books in in a more global way. So I am like deeply interested in things that are happening in Europe right now and what's resonating with people. And that, I don't know how how I'm going to sort of get into that side, but I'm super interested in that and hearing global voices because I think that Americans are like, we always think we're right. And whether that involves a lot more travel or what that does, I have no idea. And it is impossible for me to like predict because so many things just sort of land and I go, oh, that's what it is. That's what I'm supposed to do. But yes, that's what I'm thinking a lot about lately. Fascinating. And so if you could time travel back to Grinnell and back to the you of Grinnell, what would you want Grinnell Krista to know? Try fencing do this shanty club. Um, I wish that I had done other things. I I honestly, I would go back to school right now just to be like the kid in Rushmore who just does all the clubs. It doesn't actually do anything academically because I don't want to go back to classes, but I just want to do all the clubs. I'm so interested in that. I want to like learn sign language. I want to do sign language, like all these different things. If I went back, I would say like, do more of those, do less of theater. I don't regret any of that. But if I was allowed to go back, I would say like, do Mm. this too. And what would you want Grinnellians now to know? The thing about Grinnellians, and we only touched a little bit about this, is that there is such a strong ethical and moral grounding at Grinnell. And that is something that's really important to hold on to. And it's a good thing of figuring out your own self. But I would also say, like, be very careful about absolutes. You will find that there is something redemptive in probably the worst people, and there's something not great about the best people and there's a bigger world there's a bigger world 
And speaking of that bigger world, uh, as you go forth from this conversation through the world, is there something that you're looking forward to? One of the cool things about this conversation is that it's made me like reflect on all these different sort of leapfrogs that I've done in in this whole world. And I feel like what I'm really going to do is go forth and tell my kids like, it's fine. This is fine. It's going to be okay. And it's nice to remember that like, oh man, I was kind of such a fuck up about this or like all of these different things. And I think it's really valuable remembering all these things and going like, but that turned out okay. You know, when you're in your twenties or your teens, you see the game that's around you only. And you don't realize like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, like this is going to look a lot different and it's going to be okay going to be okay. Well, that could not be a better place to end this conversation. Krista, thank you so much. Thank you, Meredith. Thanks for talking to me for so long. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. This has been fantastic. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College. This episode was produced by Meredith Benjamin. Our executive producer is Katie Kriegel. Find us online at career.grinnell.edu. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Going Forth Podcast. Listen to more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Go forth, Grinnellian. See you next time. Mm-hmm.